Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everybody out there. This is DKM with Alliance-Wrestling.com. Today we have a very special guest, Mr. Fred Rubenstein, also known as Fred Richards and also the evil Mr. Fred, a referee. That's so me. how are you doing tonight, Fred? I am doing quite well, DKM. It's an honor. It's a pleasure to be with you and with your audience. And as I said, when you and I spoke privately, I'm here to answer whatever you ask. No holds barred. Well, good, because we got some good questions for you coming up involving uh, your thoughts on your time in the NWA, the current new ownership and what you think their direction may be. But before we go through all that, I realized the other day, I really don't know much about how you got started in the pro wrestling business. I don't, you know, who, who were your idols when you grew up? What was your first job? How did you start promoting? So can you give us some uh, background on Mr. Fred Rubenstein? Sure. Sure. I did start as Fred Rubenstein. Uh, I started literally back in those days, and I'm going back now to uh, just before 1959 became 1960. Back in those days, the uh, Capital Wrestling Corporation, which was Vince McMahon Sr., they were still members of the National Wrestling Alliance. It was the first brand of wrestling I was introduced to. They ran three shows a week on the old... uh, Dumont Network, which was Channel 5 in New York City. I lived in the Bronx. Uh, They ran Tuesdays out of the uh, Sunnyside Garden Arena. That is, in fact, my avatar on your excellent website. Then they ran Thursday, which is a one-week tape delay from the Capitol Arena at 14th and W Streets Northwest in Washington, D.C. And then Saturday night, uh, these all ran from 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. Eastern, It was from promoter Joe Smith at the Old City Arena in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Uh, Many times I went to Sunnyside Garden. Quite a few times I went because I had relatives in Maryland. And I actually went to the the Capitol Arena, got to know the play-by-play guy who was a fellow named Ray Morgan. Ray did it out of uh, Washington, and he did it out of Connecticut, and the feed out of uh, Sunnyside Garden in Queens, New York. Uh, I got involved one day. I said, you know what? I want to write about this stuff. Now, to me, it was not a work. To me, it was as legitimate as legitimate could be. I believed in it. They did a great job. Kayfabe was alive, well, and healthy. It was great. One day, I picked up an Estabrook fountain pen, and I took a page of loose-leaf paper out of my school notebook, and I wrote a column called Wins and Pins New York. And I sent it to the late, great Nat Lubit, who was the son-in-law of Nat Fleischer, who was the founder and publisher of Ring Magazine, which at that point in time was a mixture of boxing and wrestling. The wrestling section was a scant few pages. Uh, The only dedicated wrestling magazine you had back then was Stanley Weston's Wrestling Review, which came out quarterly. Nonetheless, the following month, I went to the local newsstand, I opened Ring Magazine, it was called The Ring, and Son of a Gun, there's my column. 
here's my column. And my penmanship was quite bad. I was scolded for it repeatedly in, in high school. Um, one day I picked up the phone. I called Matt. He invited me down to their office. Their office was on the mezzanine of the old Madison Square Garden in New York at West 49th Street and 8th Avenue. I went down there. And what did he give me? He gave me my very first press card. I was a kid in a candy store because their office was a museum, mostly focused on boxing. Uh, those were the days of Floyd Patterson, uh, Sonny Liston, Cassius Clay before he morphed into Muhammad Ali, and so many of the old fight clubs. Nat was a mentor. He encouraged me. I realized my first payday in wrestling when I did a feature story where I both wrote it and did the photography on the late Man Mountain Cannon, George MacArthur, whom I became friends with. I covered a match where he went against the great Antonino Rocca. Uh, from there, time marched on. I continued to do the column. I expanded it to include the Washington, D.C. results. Uh, I went to Washington, D.C., and I met a man who made an indelible impression on me. And his name was Buddy Rogers, the original nature boy. But he was a spinoff of Gorgeous George. His strut, his arrogance, his manager, Bobby Davis, uh, it was incredible. This guy didn't get heat. He set the place on a five-alarm fire. But he, of course, won the NWA championship in an historic match in Comiskey Park, promoted by the late Fred Kohler, that won two out of three falls in front of 43,000 people, a record at that time. And Buddy's remarks are words that are still used. When he won, the ring announcer pulled down the mic, and he looked at the crowd, and he said, to a better guy, it couldn't happen. Uh, interestingly enough, when the Vince McMahon companies broke away from the NWA, I was in row one the night that Bruno San Martino beat Buddy Rogers in 48 seconds. Uh, I ran into Bruno at a show at the old Jersey City Armory in New Jersey, and he said, were you really there? I took him through it, right down to telling him that Eddie Gersh was the referee, Georgie Brown was the timekeeper, uh, Johnny Addy was the ring announcer, and he said, you were there. I took him down exactly how it happened, right down to the bear hug submission. And I told him I knew later that Rogers was suffering from 104 feet. That was the night they split from Lufez. They didn't even have a championship belt, the belt that Buddy Rogers wore to the ring was the old United States heavyweight championship belt from the NWA that Buddy owned. Okay, shortly thereafter, that was 1963. A couple of years later, graduated high school, didn't want to go to college yet. So it was the time of Vietnam. The draft was aplenty. I was blessed with good health. And I said, let me enlist. So I enlisted in the United States Air Force, and I got sent to Lackland Air Force Base in Texas. I ended up at Goodfellow Air Force Base in San Angelo, Texas. And I started covering the matches at the San Angelo, Texas Coliseum uh, for the late Don Lawman Flatten. Several people came through whom I knew from New York. The one who really put me over was the magnificent Maurice, who used to do a tag team with the late handsome Johnny Barron, also managed by Bobby Davis. He vouched me with Slatten. I'm sitting there covering the matches. Bob Noburn was the ring announcer who also wrote for the San Angelo Standard Times. Dale Stewart, who was Dale Slatten, Don's brother, used to be the only referee. One night, I'm sitting there, and it's time for the main event. The main event was Thunderbolt Patterson versus Dory Funk Jr. Well, 
towards the finish of the preceding match, Dale took a bump, split his head open the hard way on the concrete floor. This was as real as it gets. Dory Sr. was there. And his words to me, as only Dory could say it, you've been watching this crap long enough. Get your New York ass in the ring. And I did. I slid all over the place because I had leather-soled shoes on. I was in street clothes. I was a kid in a candy store. To this day, whenever I see Dory Jr., he ribs me about it because they literally had to lead me through it, and I was hooked. I started going up to Don's shows that he ran on Monday night in Abilene, Texas, 90 miles from the base, and I honed my referee skills. And I went overseas, ended up in Vietnam, did a tour there. Uh, I really took a hiatus. And then when I got out, uh, I went back to Texas. I was on the air on a radio station there, KLIF AM and FM, got back into the refereeing. And I came north. Uh, started my education, went to work for the New York City Transit Authority, and getting a referee gig in New York was hard because at that time the New York State Athletic Commission ran it with an iron hand. Uh, McMahon, neither senior nor junior, could use their own refs. They had to be commission refs. It was the best payday you could get because in New York the referee's payday was based on the attendance. And when you worked Madison Square Garden, which when sold out had almost 21,000 people in the building, uh, it was a hefty payday. They always had three reps. And I worked for them. I had to find a politician. This was old Tammany Hall stuff, just like you see in the old Jimmy Cagney movies. And I had somebody call somebody, and I went down there with an envelope, and I wished somebody Merry Christmas in the middle of the summer. And I became a licensed referee. Same thing in New Jersey. When I was in New Jersey, I ran into another fellow, a gentleman's dead now, and that's how I started promoting. He was known as the executioner, Tom Rumsby, a name that is infamous. And uh, Tom couldn't get licensed as a promoter by the New Jersey Athletic Control Board. This was before deregulation. And I fronted for him. And, of course, we lost our shirts. I mean, Tom could have the winning numbers for the lotto, and he'd still lose. Rest in peace. Uh, then other people came into my life. One of the finest men whom I ever know, I've ever known, who I still call my partner to this day, Phil Varlise, Iron Man Tommy Cairo. Uh, we started promoting. We ran up and down the Jersey Shore from Tom's River South uh, to below Atlantic City. We actually, uh, Tommy and Phil had been in the Tropicana in Atlantic City as the outlaws of wrestling. They had a very successful promotion. And we kept it going. And, of course, my gimmick was the lead referee. But then I got into the National Wrestling Alliance. We had bought in. Uh, I got friendly with Howard Brody. I had been working with the late, great Dennis Carluzzo. Now, DKM, I want to clarify something because there's a lot of misinformation. Dennis and I, yes, we had a falling out. We did. People quarrel. Doesn't mean they hate each other. Uh, as push came to shove, the NWA executive board, which I was not a part of. I wasn't even a member. I was the advisor to Howard Brody working along with Bob Trowbridge. Uh, they basically expelled Dennis. At that time, myself, a gentleman named Joe Panzerino, and Gino Moore, uh, we applied for and were granted the franchise in the New Jersey area. And later on, we to New York when my good friend Rick O'Brien uh, moved to Virginia. Uh, the membership was actually put in my name 
And when Joe and Gino and I ended our collaboration, that's why it went to me. I ended up being on the executive board of the NWA. Uh, I was its treasurer at one point, its recording secretary. And while Ernie Todd was the president, I was elected vice president. I worked with many interesting guys. It was fun. We never made a dime, but the annual convention where we literally threw water balloons out the window of the hotel, I mean, it was worth everything. We met, we all had these grandiose ideas, and we laid more eggs than Frank produced chicken. Uh, <laughs> there came a point in time, I think the rest of it you are familiar with, DKM, and that is in 2005, we had our annual meeting in uh, Nashville, and Howard had left the organization he had a belly full of wrestling. It had cost him dearly, and he did the smart thing. He just took a long sabbatical. I would end up working later with Howard in the incredible, fantastic, great Ring Warriors promotion. That's another story. Uh, that is a product that is on sabbatical. It will be back. It's showing internationally. Another story for another day. Uh, but Rick O'Brien and I one night said, you know what? This business of having a president, a vice president, executive board, all it is is a debating society. It's sheer crap. That's when we actually gave birth to the idea of having an executive director. At first, we thought about Howard. Howard would not have gone over well. We needed somebody that would be acceptable to everyone, and there was nobody better who meet that than Bob Trowbridge, who had served magnanimously as the organization's attorney. Bob Trowbridge is a good attorney. He's as straight as an arrow. He loved the business. He was honored, and he accepted. Now, let's also remember that at that point in time, we were already collaborating with TNA. Jeff Jarrett and I formed a friendship. It exists to this day. It's solid. We talk. Uh, I was there when his first wife, Jill, succumbed to cancer, and I wish them well all the time, he, Karen, and the children. Jeff is a wonderful, wonderful talented young man. I know his father, Jerry, and I can't say enough good things about Jeff. We met in Nashville many times. I negotiated the second TNA deal. The first one was brought to us by the great Bill Behrens, uh, and we went forward. There came a point in time, uh, I was the original TNA liaison, which for some reason, and Bob had ex absolute authority, he chose to transfer that job to another person who's dead now, a gentleman who promoted an NWA promoter out of Chicago, the late Ed Schumann, uh, things started to go sour. We never had any right to manage or to dictate terms. We had a deal. We had a bonanza out of it. We got free advertising on their weekly shows. They were still doing the weekly pay-per-views at that point. Uh, we got our guys who had reasonable talent. They hired them. They put them on the air. It was a magnificent growing experience for aspiring wrestlers because the program had a good audience. There was substantial interest in it. But then I kept getting calls from Jeff, and he said, Fred, what the blank? And I said, what do you mean, what the blank? And he told me about these calls. He forwarded emails to me, and I went to Trowbridge. And I said, what the blank? This was the best chance the NWA had of pulling itself out of the doldrums. We were working with somebody else's money. We had international TV at zero cost. Our brand, our titles were being placed 
on noteworthy, capable wrestlers, and people were talking about us again. They didn't need us. Panda Energy owned them. This was pre-Dixie Carter. They had their own brand, TNA, Total Nonstop Action. What in the hell did they need our three letters of the alphabets for? Well, they didn't need it. The Jared family had an affection for it, the same way that I did and still do. Uh, Finally, it became untenable. Andy Barton, who was Panda's man on the ground, Bob Ryder, enough was enough. I came to learn later, I'm not going to go into specifics, that that deal was intentionally sabotaged from within because two people who had delusions thought that they could take the meager treasury of the NWA, which at that time was roughly $29,000, and parlay it into a fortune. They were going to start their own wrestling net. Well, you know what? They didn't have a clue, and they lost it all. TNA dropped us. Uh, the following year at the annual, show, at the annual meeting, uh, during the junior heavyweight championship match that I refereed, that was the first time I met Richard Bruce Thought and Chris Ronquillo. Uh, we hit it off. They were nice gentlemen. I knew nothing about them except they both were associates under Ken Taylor's Texas membership. Uh, a couple of months went by. Questions started to be asked. Questions were being asked about insurance coverage, policies. Uh, was the coverage honest? What was it? Can I see it? Honest, simple questions. And to this day, I believe they had a right to ask them. And they had a right to truthful answers. Well, it came down to the fact that they were not satisfied with the answer. And they were talking lawsuit. Bob. Now, by this time, they had actually already bought in, right? They had bought in. The night of that annual show I mentioned, they had bought in as associates. They were still associates under Taylor. Howard Brody then came back as a full member in the state of Florida. But yes, they had bought in, they had paid their money. Uh, so they began litigation. It was Bruce Tharp and Chris Ronquillo, and this is on your website. It's public record. Uh, I gave everybody the citations, which you were kind enough to post. I agree with your decision to lock the thread, but it clearly shows that it was filed in 2012, and it names the defendants. It names the defendants. Uh, during the pretrial motions, uh, there was an investigation. Now, remember, I was still on the board of directors, even though Trowbridge was the executive director. Questions were asked of me. Questions were asked of Mike Searcy. Questions were asked of Howard Brody, Rick O'Brien, others who were bona fide members. And we were being asked about the organization's money, this and that. Ron Quillo and Tharp, even though they filed litigation, were still associates. They had to sue Ken Taylor, too. And he's named in that because they had authority under Ken's full membership. Remember, back then they weren't licensees, DKN. They were share-owning members of pro wrestling organization, LLC. I made inquiries. And I got either no answer or answers that proved false. What put it over the top for me is I had a fiduciary responsibility. I knew where the NWA's money was supposed to be on deposit. We started calling the bank 
And the way the bank would verify it is I'd say, okay, my name is so-and-so. I've been given a check by this company, which was the name on the account. I want to verify that check before depositing it. And we started at $1,000, and we literally got down to $2. We found out that the account had been moved. We then called the police. In fact, I met with the Federal Bureau of Investigation in West Palm Beach, Florida. And we found out that the money had been moved to another bank. It had been moved without the knowledge or consent of the executive board. Uh, There were other things that came out about people who had debit cards on the organization's account who had no reason to have debit cards. And the facts became clear. I consult attorneys in New Jersey, and I followed their advice. After the lawsuit got to the point where it was the hearing on the defendant's motion, the last person to testify was Bill Behrens. He was on the witness stand in front of Judge Arturo McDonald. The defendants were claiming that instead of a trial, that this dispute should have gone through the NWA's existing arbitration process. Of course, the plaintiff said that the arbitration process was never intended to handle matters of this nature. It was a lay process. This was a matter for people with legal credentials. Behrens, appearing as one of the defendants, when he was questioned directly on the stand by another attorney named David Willis, he was asked about the arbitration process. And Behrens' last sentence was that, yes, that's correct. The process was never intended to arbitrate matters of this nature. Judge McDonald, and remember, I was in the courtroom every minute of the time. Judge McDonald then looked and he said, you know what? He said, at first, I was going to remand this for arbitration because that's what courts do. My little bit of law school, they look, when they can get rid of a case, they get rid of a case, judicial economy and all that. But once McDonald heard Behrens' answer coming from one of the defendants, he declared jurisdiction and the matter was set down for trial. Well, common sense prevailed and we all went back to one of the two hotels and we started to talk. We started to negotiate because the NWA did not have a war chest. They had already retained Texas counsel, uh, Bob Trowbridge and one of the other defendants never set foot in Texas. They knew they could not be served and they just simply stayed away. So there was outside local counsel that was costly. They were billing at several hundred dollars an hour, which was the going rate. And the negotiation came to the point where we would drop all charges, all claims for counsel fees, etc. That's what Bruce and Chris agreed to in exchange for getting the brand and the surrender of all business records, etc. And that's what happened. At that point, I was approached by both of them, and I was asked if I wanted to work with them as a full one-third partner. And I said yes. And the other names I mentioned, they also wanted to come on board. Some of it I have to stop because I am legally stopped from discussing it. It was part of the settlement in the case when uh, Tharp and Ron Quillo litigated against me. If you look at the chronology I put on your website, the second case was Tharp against Greg Price. Uh, 
I can't talk to that case. I can only tell you it was very real. Greg and I remain friends to this day. The next case in 2013 was when Bruce and Chris and I had a major dispute, and they litigated against me that resulted in a negotiated settlement uh, where I surrendered my interests. There was consideration given to me. Subsequent to that, Bruce and Chris had a meltdown. And you can see on your website that in 2014, Bruce sued Chris. Uh, After that, I was sitting at home. It was just before Christmas. And I always used to kid Chris, and I used to call him kid because he was younger than me. They called me, my, my nickname was the old bastard. I loved it. I was older than both of them, and I didn't mind it. I know the spirit it was set in. I was the old bastard. Uh, I get an email from Chris basically telling me things he found out and basically asking us if we could make the bones and apologize. I had no tent. I just said, you know what? Too much has been said and too much has been done. There's nothing ill in my heart. I get a call from Phil Varlise, and he told me to talk with Chris. Phil Varlise's word means the world. I trust him with the combination for my safe deposit box. And I sat home. It was just before Christmas. I picked up my phone and I texted Chris and I simply said, Merry Christmas, kid. Chris was in church with his wife. He started to cry. After they left church, he called me. We're on the phone several hours. And I've been down to see him. He's seen me. Some very cruel things were done to Chris. You've read about it. You've read how Tony Brooklyn, mysteriously, certain things were sent to his former employer that cost him his job. You took the bread and butter off the table of a man who had a wife and children to feed. Takes a real son of a bitch to do that. Chris is back. He's bigger than ever. He's doing good. Our friendship is quite solid. We speak regularly. Do we talk about wrestling? Hell no. Uh, And that's where it's at. Phil Varlis and I, Every time we talk about doing a show just for the hell of it, our wives come in front of us. They flash us with their nightgowns open and say, take a good look, because if you promote a show, you will then know what celibacy means. And that's as far (laughs) as it goes. That is true, DKM. That is true. So it's very effective. uh, And we move on. But we talk, we reminisce. We're very proud of what we did. Uh, there were no payless paydays. If somebody said they were getting something, they got some. Did we have business disagreements? Yes. Marriages argue. It doesn't always go to divorce court, for heaven's sake. You reconcile. Right. You compromise. You meet. That's the difference between adults and children. Do Chris and I have a feeling as to what happened? Do we feel we were victimized? We have our feelings. We have our reasons to believe that way. We have taken action. Uh, that has been teased on your board. The action that we have taken is not public record at this time. We have been successful in part of it already. That's as far as I can go with that, but I stand behind it. Now, let's get to the new NWA. I've never met Billy Corgan. I'm told I met Dave Lagana, but I don't remember him. It might have been during the Corluzo days or when I worked shows in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, I don't know him. Them both luck. It takes a real bastard to want to see people fail. I have an affection for the brand. 
But I will also say that in my personal and professional opinions, the brand belongs in a museum. Why? Because it can never be the brand again. On your board, I once did an analogy to Braniff International Airways, which took the aviation world by storm with its solid-colored jets, with back then they called them stewardesses, who were dressed. You didn't need Viagra. I mean, it was incredible. And then they went under. Years later, somebody tried to resurrect them using the name. It wasn't the same. It wasn't the same Braniff. The planes were bland. A stewardess had evolved into flight attendants. And what used to be a maximum age of 26 now went to Medicare cards. So it wasn't the same. Uh, What was the NWA? What made it great? What put asses in seats? Was knowing how to use television as a promotional vehicle, not giving it away. The day of the jobber. The jobber was one of the most important cogs in the wheel because he helped set the table for the arena shows. You got people out. There was no pay-per-view. There was no Ticketmaster. There certainly was no internet. You got people out. But what was it? It was two guys with beer bellies, Crusher Lasowski, uh, Dick the Bruiser, others like that, Mike Mazurki, Haystacks Calhoun, standing there beating the tar out of each other. There were no hurricane runners. Very rarely a drop kick unless it was Ricky Starr or Antonino Rocco or Argentina Apollo. And there were two guys. And who did they appeal to? Yeah, they appealed to the working man. But the working man filled the arena. He related to the, pro- to the product. It was the quintessential good versus all. Buddy Rogers was hated. It wasn't that likes of Stone Cold Steve Austin where the bad guy became the good guy. You were a heel, you were a heel, and your job was to stay a heel. The biggest thing was that they acknowledged that the promoter controlled the crowd. The promoter controlled the wrestlers. You were told what to do. And if you didn't go out there and do it, you got the shit beat out of you when you got back to the locker room and you didn't work again. Now, democracy does not work in the, bed, in the boardroom. It doesn't even work in the bedroom. Okay? It's got to be a business. When I listen to ideas, oh, we're going to have an internet presence. You really think you're going to make a buck with that? Get your head out of your ass. There's too much free stuff. There's too much bootleg stuff. It's tough. As Dave Lagana stated, and I listened to your podcast with him, my compliments, it was excellent. My compliments to you and Dave. I think he was very candid. He made his case clear, and I was impressed. Uh, But Dave said, accurately so. McMahon can fill the live venues anymore because everybody knows nothing's going to happen. It's going to happen on the pay-per-views. It's not going to happen in Madison Square Garden. God, his father used to run the garden 13 times a year, ran on a Monday night. Kids under 14 couldn't get in. That was the law. But he filled it because he set the show up. He set it up on those three television shows I discussed at the top of the interview. If you are going to make money, don't talk to me about DVDs, please. We used to go through that in New Jersey. Nobody's buying them anymore, for Christ's sake, especially pro wrestling DVDs unless it's something that goes back to nostalgia. There's money in nostalgia. You have solid gold radio stations, you have conventions, and they sell, and they make a buck. And it's the only thing out there in the wrestling market that's not being done in the center of the ring. I'm not talking about wheeling out Billy Graham, God love his heart, 
to sign autographs for $45 a clip. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the genre, the style, the cadence, the rhythm of the match. Getting back to the Carl Von Hesses, getting back to what they did, getting back to the most profitable program in the history of the WWF at the time. Never involved a title, never ran as the card-closing main event. It was good, old-school promoting and booking. And it was the Iron Sheik against Sergeant Slaughter. The American GI, not an officer, a sergeant, a drill sergeant, going against the hated Iranian. And they did it smart. They built. They built to anti-climax. They built it until the blow-off with the barracks match. They ran it all the way from Boston to the bottom of the East Coast. And it sold out arenas because they knew how to set it up. They knew instead of having one match, oh, yeah, well, we're going to have the match and the belt's going to change hands. It's not how you did it to make money. You had to get them back with the same match two and three times. You knew how to set it up. You knew where to put the match on so that intermission when people were still hot, they went right, oh, tickets are on sale now. They ran to the box office instead of eating popcorn. That's how it was done. That's how they made their money. When they set up WrestleMania three with Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant, masterful, 92,000 people in the Silverdome, unheard of for pro wrestling. Countless millions on pay-per-view. You've got to learn the product. They've got some good people. I watched Tim Storm. I don't know him, but I watched him. He's believable. He make a good champion. But I've also watched some of the matches that are online. They suck. They're loose. They're predictable. And nobody wants to go to the crowd. The old matches... You could, my God, you, you, you go in there on a two out of three, four match, and there was maybe four or five minutes of wrestling. The rest was doing what you're in there to doing, inciting the crowd. There was money in riots, big money in riots, because people wanted to come back and see the heel get pulverized. They don't do it anymore. They're scared to do that type of booking. You want to, uh, Paul Heyman, Paul Heyman took all the losers. Rest in peace, Eddie Gilbert, a handful of others, some good guys like Steve Carino, et cetera, who I love to death. And they pulled him in. And he promoted. He controlled his audience. He didn't let his audience control them. He led them. It was Pavlovian. He rang the bell. They salivated. And they packed that stinking arena on the other side of the Walton Bridge in Philadelphia. Week after week, they bought the pay-per-views. He was doing brutality. Paul took it too far. When people yell boring after they say New Jack, jump off a balcony for the fifth time, what do you do next? You cut off somebody's pinky? Resort to cannibalism? It's got to have a promoter who understands. Nobody's doing this stuff anymore. Everybody, oh, they come out. Yeah, the music, the spotlights, the firecrackers, this, that, the girls with with the magnificent memories. Everybody's doing it. They've seen it all before. You've got to do something different uncomplicated the kiss principle keep it simple stupid you complicate it you raise your overhead the nwa had become a mess whether it was uh, members or licensees whatever you want to call them good kids tony gibbons one of the finest young men had a passion for it but you'd look at tony's videos he was the same kids his local kids once in a while he brings somebody in that took money you look at his crowds he played to a niche market. It was the same people every day. Okay? The ladies with their the bellies over their belt. 
the guys who are in desperate need of a dentist. And these are the people that came, and you can't make money on a $10 or a $5 ticket. You can't get yourself. What are you paying your workers? Hey, guys, I'm giving you exposure. Well, zip your fly up. That's the same type of exposure. It means nothing. You've got to know how to grow them. You've got to give them a reason to stay with you. You've got to lock them into contracts. That was the weakness we had. The three of us got the NWA, myself, Bruce, and, 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 and Chris. Okay, we got it. We got the prom queen. What do we do with the next? Does she come with a manual? Where do we run? Can I dictate to a licensee? You've got to bring in Steve Carino. I know you're in Texas. I know the round-trip airfare and the hotel is more than your entire show budget. But this is what you've got to do. Hey, Rubenstein, up yours. Nothing I can do to compel it. When Trowbridge was the executive director, if you booked the world champion, he waived your annual $300 membership fee. That's how desperate we became. There's some wow, good people out well, I'm telling you, it was done. I still have the emails. I save everything. I'm a pack rat. But, you know, you can do this. When Howard Brody and Larry Brannon and Paul Jones began Ring Warriors, which I'm proud to be a part of in both managerial and as the lead referee. I never say senior referee. It reminds me of my age. Uh, <laughs> it was it was refreshing, but but it was built on old school. We never intended to sell it in the United States of America. It ran overseas. Japan, the best market for wrestling. Kayfabe is alive. You watch New Japan. The undulating bosoms are missing. They bring them in. They do strong style. When the NWA was brought over, when Yoshiyuka Nakamura, the owner of Zero One, along with the late Shinya Hashimoto and Oki Okaida, who was their ring announcer, when they started working with us, the night evil Mr. Fred was born in St. Petersburg, Florida, right after the 9-11 tragedy, uh, we did old school. That match is still available. When I did the match between Hashimoto and Steve Carino, they didn't need me. I was a middle-aged ref, and I had a belly back then, okay? And they watched what I did, and they say, this work over here. He know how to do heel ref, to bring a ref. Christ's sake, $2,000 airfare. They paid me very handsomely. Hotels, meal allowance we got there, but they brought me over. Why? Because I knew how to do the screw job. I knew how to look at the crowd. My two, I had been doing that for years. I didn't even get a fart out of the crowd domestically. But over there, I saw Nakamura. All of a sudden, the crowd is going, two along with me. And I saw Nakamura smiling. What did he see? He saw bringing me back more angles, and he saw merchandise, for which I got a 30% VIG. He saw merchandise. That's a promoter, Yoshi Nakamura. Let me get to one other thing that I saw on your board, and I heard Dave talk to. Make no mistake about it. The WWE and Zero One have rights in perpetuity the NWA. Dave said they had a good trademark attorney. Well, guess what? They weren't the only ones. Their attorney ain't going to beat Jerry McDavid. McDavid has not used the NWA. If it gets too big, trust me, they will. They'll exercise their rights. That's how Vince does it. That's his modus operandi. He'll, he'll give you your niche, but don't get too big. Zero one, with what you're making, you're going to fly 7,000 miles, 
have to retain counsel who speaks Japanese and you're going to fight them on their home turf? Sure you are. You want to buy the Brooklyn Bridge? It's still for sale. Do I think that the NWA can go places if they do it right? They started. Okay, everybody on your board, October 1st. Well, it's October the 18th. I don't see a website. I see theory. I see a minor presence on Facebook. Better to stay quiet. We knew, Chris, Bruce, and I, that we had to get something out there. I invented the name NWA Ringside because Dave Republic still owned NWAWrestling.com, was sore, didn't want to give it up. I understand that. I would have done the same thing. But you, you can't talk theory. You have to talk product. You have to give people something that excites them. You've got to take a Tim Stone. What we were doing in Ring Warriors, and one of your people, I don't know if it was Doty or who, said, would I be willing to uh, work with them, this and that? Okay. Uh, I just fulfilled my contract with uh, the Palm Beach County Transit System. I'm going back to uh, New Jersey, where I'm going to teach as an adjunct professor at a branch of Rutgers University. Very proud of that. But my avocation was wrestling. Would I be there if they wanted to talk? Yeah. Uh, I love the brand. And it kind of makes you feel good as an old geezer when people say, hey, Pops, how about your opinion? Well, Sonny, that's how it's done. That's the final service, the final respect, the most overused word in the wrestling lexicon. That's the final respect you can show is to pass the torch. When Buddy Rogers stopped, and Buddy Landell was Nature Boy. Ric Flair was Nature Boy. Ric Flair was Buddy Rogers. Figure four, leg lock, the whole McGillah. Okay? That's the way it was done. That was the tradition. You jobbed your last match. That was the ritual, the rite of passage. Would I talk with them if they wanted to talk with me? Yeah. Am I looking to be a partner in their company? Hell no. Hell no. You don't cure cancer and then go have lunch in the asbestos patch unless you're the village idiot. But I would certainly be willing to give them the benefit of my experience and my opinion for what it's worth. Uh, when they ended the licensees, I understand why they did it. And I understand that some of them, a couple of them were quite noble. They went out on a high note. Others were quite hurt. They threw a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of energy uh, they kept their kids motivated, their local kids whom they put on the show. And that's another thing. You get some of these kids, they don't belong in a wrestling ring. You're not believable when they're 98-pound weekly. I mean, these kids are good. They work their heart out. They get hurt. They, go to their, they, they lay down their $3,000 at a wrestling school. And as a wrestler, you ain't a wrestler. You're not a wrestler. You don't look like a wrestler. You don't know how to work a crowd like a wrestler. You don't understand the psychology of the business. You get in that ring and you sell. Wrestling never was. Pro wrestling never was, never will be the Olympics. It's the theater. Whenever I ref the match and we went to the back and the boys would say to me, how did it look? I'd say, I don't give a shit how it looked. I care how it sounded. You could have missed every move that we went over. We were the only ones who knew. But if you knew how to work that crowd and get them to pop and the heel got them to hate their guts where the police had to restrain them, you did your job. Now you had their money that night. Now you gave them a reason to spend more money to come and see you get your ass kicked. That is professional wrestling. 
You're always thinking to the next card. You're moving forward. You have a vision. You don't have kids. Well, bell time is seven. Well, when I get John with my job at the car wash, I'll be there 30 minutes before the bell. Bullshit. You're not a professional. You work with a, a Tim Storm or somebody. You go over the promos. Extemporaneous talking. There's some that can do it, and there's some that don't have a clue. Jack Stane, good wrestler. I like Jeremy. Good kid. But he couldn't cut a promo to save his life. He's a horrible interview. He doesn't know how to look into that camera and get them to hate his guts. Nobody wants to do submission holds anymore. There's a bunch of them out there. Swing full Nelsons, neck breakers, modifications of Cobra clutches, snap mares, Boston crabs. Nobody wants to do it. High spot, high spot, high spot. Enough already. How many times do you have to see the movie before you know the script? And they don't want to change it. And some of the promoters out there who allow the lunatics to run the asylum and then wonder why they're drawing 20 and 30 people got to look in the mirror. It's your product. You put the money at risk. And one other thing I want to say, I enjoy the people on your board. I respect them all. I know some of them kibitz each other. Hey, you know, it's another pole jump thing. It's this and that. But at least they write. They write. They're not people who just the keyboard commandos. But my God, if you've never put money in wrestling, if you've never known what it feels like to stand there knowing you've got thousands of dollars at risk and I've got five tickets sold before the show, when Joe Panzerino and Gino Moore and I were working together as NWA New Jersey, we used to run the old Wildwood Convention Center. The place holds twelve or 1,500. We ran on the night that the showrooms in Atlantic City nearby were dark. And we would stand there and we would be ready to commit suicide. We'd have maybe 50 tickets sold. The building was running as thousands. We had to bring in at least one name. The names at that time were Tito Santana, King Kong Bundy, who lived nearby, uh, Mike Sharp, rest in peace. Uh, they were nearby and we got a better rate because we were running weekday and they didn't have any other bookings. And then we'd end up selling the building out. The line would be down the boardwalk. We'd stand out there with umbrellas in case it started to rain. That's the agony and the ecstasy of promoting wrestling. You're not going to sell it on the Internet. You're going to have a lot of voyeurs. Today's technology, you know as well as I do. Listen, I'm a geezer. Okay? Computers and I, we have a very, very adult relationship. I turn it on. I click. It works. If not, I I go and get the Geek Squad. I'm technically challenged. I'm a product of my age. I can't work a computer. You can't work a real pinball machine. Uh, But, uh, uh, again. Yes, I can. Not the way I did it without tilting it. All right, I'm from a generation of pinball machines and carbon paper, son. But all all kidding around aside, I love the brand. I have an affection for the brand. And I understand business. Okay, I'm a successful businessman in my real career. Uh, I don't brag about it, but people who know me, I'm a success. I'm very proud of what I've done over my 46-year career. I went from the bottom as a bus driver to the top as a general manager gives me great pride and it's been very kind to me financially that aside i want to see corgan succeed i really do i want to i would like the brand to be restored but you can't do the same goddamn thing that everybody else is doing and expect to succeed you've got to work with your standard bearers tim storm is raw meat 
He can be tenderized. He can be put in a smokehouse. And he can evolve into gourmet fare. Look at his matches. You got to get him the right opponents. You got to stop with the, the cluster F's in the ring. The last match I saw, there's the female, there's the guy in the suspenders. It's too complicated. It's too complicated. Keep it simple, stupid. Look at the old matches that drew tens of thousands of people. Look at what they did. They came out in, in trunks with a white towel they pilfered from the local motel under their arm. And they got out there. They rushed the bell. They beat the shit out of them. They went into chokeholds. They, 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 they gouged eyes. And they sold it to the crowd. And they got in the crowd's face. And they got them. They made them hate them. That's what sold the product. Think it won't work today? I challenge you to have the guts to try it. God knows you say you have well, the money. Give it a shot. Well, you know, actually, I think the reverse is kind of proving what you're saying today. Because if I'd say there was personal opinion here, if there was one big issue That's what in, mine re- is. in, re- in wrestling right now, is that yes, sir. there is no emotional investment in the part of the fans. I was here in Texas during the heat of the Freebird Von Eric feud. Do you know what the best promo I ever heard during that was? Kevin Von Eric. Tell me, sir. Was not mm-hmm. was not a good talker. He was not a good talker. Mm-hmm. But Kevin Von Eric grabs the mic one time when the Freebirds were sitting there with their Confederate flags and everything. And he goes, you know, I have family that died underneath that flag, too. He goes, this isn't a battle between Georgia and Texas. It's between decency and self. And what you just said, go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead, sir. Well, I mean, I was just going to say, you know, throughout the entire feud, throughout everything like that, there was probably nothing that hit harder than that one. You know, it was about three lines. He said three lines just before a match. And it hit home. We hated what the did you just say, DKM? What did you just say? You just described the essence, the success of slaughter against the Iron Sheik. It was G.I. Joe against the evil Iranian, 444 days of hostage capture. It was basic stuff. Two believable guys. There were no high spots. There was none of this. They just went in and beat the shit out of each other. And they played on the American spirit at the time. It was keep it simple, stupid. What you just described with the Von Erichs and the Freebirds is a vivid example of what I'm talking about. It can work if it's done right, if the promoter is, it, it, it works at it. You've got to have people. You've got to have agents. One of the finest men I know, a personal friend, Jim Cornette, he and I are on the same page. We brought him into Ring Warriors. The guy balled the hell out of somebody because he exposed the business. It's got to be religion. It's got to be gospel. You lose the yuppie shit. This isn't the Yale Club. This is grunt and groan, catch as catch can pro wrestling. There's money out there. There's money out there. Okay, there's money. You can get their money if you know how to do it. And you've got to give them something different. They're not going to come and see you when they can see Vince from the convenience of their easy chair. They can DVR it. They can play it back whenever they want. They can stop it if nature calls and they got to go to the can. Or they can get a pizza on their own and not pay his prices, not worry about parking by going to an arena. That's why, as uh, Dave Lagana said, they can't fill the buildings. You know what it costs to go to Madison Square Garden to get in there? 
ridiculous. Now, for know. one <laughs> price of maybe 60 bucks, for maybe 60 bucks, you can have 30 people over your house watching WrestleMania. It's cost-effective. You bring your own gear no, that you, you buy need- at the local convenience store. That's how it's done. You don't even need that anymore. $10 a month, you can hook it up to a high-def TV, your computer to a high-def TV, and you okay. can watch it. Stay with that. Stay with that. Why did Vince, why did he do that? He did it to take care of the opposition. Come on. When the NWA on demand started, it was bullshit. We all knew it was bullshit. Aside from what's been on the board about how Valerie and Joey Bosch were treated. I'm not here to talk about that. Uh, I put also on your website where Mr. Tharp is suing the fellow who is the power of attorney. That's another story. But why did they do that? Vince could afford to do it. He wants to be the whole effing show, as Rob Van Dam would say. And he is. $10 a month. You can watch the old stuff. You can watch the pay-per-views. High definition. How in the hell are you going to compete with that? How are you going to do it? You're going to give it away? Then why did you buy it? What do you need? Corgan, you need a tax deduction? Give it to, give it to wounded warriors, for Christ's sake. Is this, is, is this romper room or is it business? Look at the Japanese. Don't envy them. Copy them. Copy them. Filling the damn Tokyo Dome. Look at the quality of their product. Watch what they're doing. You take a Tim Storm. You take a couple of guys. And Tim is a good wrestler. I'm not ragging on Tim. Look at what Steve Carino, all Steve Carino did to sell out Japan, he'd go over there. They'd have him in a wrist hold. Just, you know, I've refer- refereed so many times I could do it with my eyes closed. And Steve would look at the crowd, and he'd scream two words, Hashimoto Baka. Shinya Hashimoto, rest in peace, who was the local hero over there. And Baka meant stupid. All he'd do is say, Hashimoto stupid, and he got a pop. He got a pop. And he, 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 he got himself over time after time. Steve was spending more time in Japan than he did in Pennsylvania. I went over there. Shit, my passport, I went through passports. Okay? And I made a good buck. And I loved it. But it was so basic. It was so basic. I was a middle-aged man. I was 54 years old when I was refereeing over there. I did two matches. I was making $1,000 a card plus 30% of any of the T-shirts or the sweatshirts. That had my likeness on it. I kept all the frequent flyer miles. I made lifelong friendships there. But that's how it was done. You look at the model of success. You're not going to reinvent the wheel, for God's sake. People are too smart. The Internet has ruined it. Okay? The Internet, forums, uh, all this stuff, it's ruined it. There's no way. Vince, the thing, if I could kick Vince McMahon Jr. in the nuts, I would, because the day that kayfabe died, when Linda McMahon stood there with my two friends, the headbangers at the Meadowlands, and the word sports entertainment was born, you just made the battle hard. The hill is going up. Even Vince is running out of new stuff to do. Now you have the added uh, competition of mixed martial arts. Corbin, smash some pumpkins. But Christ's sake, I want to see you make it, goddammit. Bring it back. Bring it back. But if you're going to bring it back, bring it back. It, what it was, what sold, give it a shot. If it doesn't work, you can always change course. Dave Lagana, talented kid. Okay, yeah, he made the rounds. That doesn't mean he failed. Okay, it means, hey, I buy a different model of car. I just bought a new Caddy. I used to have a Lincoln before that. They're both cars. So you move on. You did, you got hired in places where many others 
That's a merit badge. But don't try and copy them. You ain't going to do what they do. You're kidding yourself. One last example. Remember years ago, Vince had WrestleMania. There was a screw job for the championship. And all of a sudden, what did you hear? Jack Tenney came out as the president. Tuesday in Texas. They made their money with WrestleMania on a Sunday, and they made it again on a Tuesday because they knew how to set it up. One of the smartest moves I ever saw on pay-per-view television. The anti-climax. People want to see a decision. In the middle of the ring, make it clean. Don't give it to them the first time out. Don't do it. Don't do it. All right. That brings a question I have for you just to get your old-timers' perspective on it. It's not NWA-related. It's actually WWE-related. But what is your what is your opinion about the brand split? Because right now, WWE, I think between SmackDown, Raw, and Next, they got like 23 people who claim to be champion of some form or another. Well... They got, I have they got top for titles, secondary titles, <laughs> tag team titles, out the wazoo. What was the old what, what was the old saying? Dating myself, you can't tell the champions without a scorecard. I think it's absurd. Right. I think there's no value to a title anymore. The only one that makes out on is the guy who makes the belts, Dave Milliken. I hope you're making a lot of money. Uh, but I think it's a joke. I think it's satirical. Uh, I think what they hope to do is have the American League versus the National League leading up to a World Series where it's interbrand competition. Vince failed with the XFL, or maybe he can do this. Uh, I just I, I don't like it. I don't like it. I think it's too complicated to, to follow. Uh, I understand how it's tiered. I've watched it. I still keep in touch with several of the guys. Uh, Bandito Jr., my brother, that are refing out there, son of a bitch, still has one of my ref shirts. I'll get him. Uh, but <laughs> I, I keep in touch with it. But I, I think it's absurd. And I think it makes the word champion diluted. You put too much water in the soup, and it's not soup anymore. That's what's happened with championships under the McMahon philosophy. All right. Uh, someone messaged me uh question here. It kind of goes back to what you were talking sure. about earlier. Uh, of course, you were close with uh, Dennis Carluzzo. And Rest in peace. Robbed, he joined, out of the be- robbed of the best years of his life. And he actually joined the NWA while it was still part of uh, WCW. Mm-hmm. And so can you, can you get into a little bit about why he decided to join? I mean, really, there would be no NWA today if it wasn't for Dennis. And anybody who disputes that statement doesn't know their ass from their elbow. You're right. Uh, I mean, Dennis Carluzzo. I mean, it's, it's, it's true. At one point, he was basically the NWA. And if if he had decided just to walk away from the brand, nothing would – there would be no NWA today. And so Dennis, how did he get involved with it? He got involved with it. Paul Heyman, remember at that time they were – close to each other. Where Dennis was in the part of New Jersey, he was, he was literally 10 minutes from Philadelphia. He was in National Park. He was in Deptford. The Walt Whitman Bridge, you can see it. You could see it from Dennis's house, which I spent many a pleasant afternoon in. Uh, his son, Mark, had the passion too. 
in touch with him, daughter Missy. I uh, hear from his former wife, Debbie, was friends with my wife. Anyway, Dennis got involved with it. He got scooped up with Howard Brody. Now, Dennis could talk a blind man out of his cane. He was a scoundrel in a lovable way. Was Dennis Carluzzo a criminal? No, he was not. Did he take risks? He took risks that scared me. Uh, but he captured the spirit. He was a gateway. He believed in the young people. Billy Kidman, Steve Carino, the late, great Chris Candido, Devin Stormer went on to become Crowbar, Ace Darling, uh, the Pitbulls. I could go through so many of them. He still brought in the legend. He had the hot shot. Uh, but Deji, Dennis got involved in it. Oh, geez, I'm coming up blind. The guy from Australia was him, Dennis, and Steve Howard. Rickards. Steve Ricard, yes, rest in peace. Good people. It led up to the culmination of what? That night on the Fed TV, when Howard Brody, still in the ugliest goatee since Maynard G. Krebs, was in the center of the ring with Dennis, with Jeff Jarrett, as the TNA interest was, was growing. That was the zenith. They made it to the top of the world. They brought the NWA in, and that's where the rights in perpetuity came, and they never would have set foot in that ring without that letter being signed by Howard, who was the president and had the authority to do it, and had the full backing of the board. Uh, Dennis was a trailblazer. The shows that he put on, I mean, they were incredible. We used to run in this place called Imagination, which was famous. It was a Polish-American club. And it was best known for its chronically backed-up men's room. Uh, but he packed it. The cards, the cards. Mike Keener and I were the referees. And the cards, they go on. It was like a Frankie Goodman show. 12, 13 matches. Uh, the athletic control board was there, and I remember them saying, I don't want to know. I don't want to know. I don't want to see this. The gimmick in New Jersey, then, is everybody had an, have an EKG. And you would be amazed at how many people's heart rhythms looked exactly the same. Because we used to get one done, and we took it to the photocopy machine in the nearby Wawa, and we made copies. Nobody cared. Old Doc <laughs> Wilson, wonderful man from Atlantic City, he didn't give a shit. He'd look at you. How do you feel, son? My pressure's a little high. You're great. Go ahead. I mean, it was just like you saw in some of the, the old movies. Nobody could fail the physical. Uh, but Dennis pioneered things. Dennis did something I'm a big believer in. Are you listening, Corgan? The specialty match, chain matches, ladder matches, old NWA shit. Tradition with him was more than a word in the dictionary. He grew up on this stuff. He liked this stuff. And he knew how to pick out guys. The legendary Mr. Puerto Rico, Ralph Soto against Rick Ratchet. Oh, my God. It was, he stacked the card right. We had midgets. May Young. We stacked it the old school way. You had the comedy matches all building to the crescendo of the main event. It was wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful. Nobody's had the guts to do it yet. Dennis was, he ruled with an iron fist. He'd come back in that locker room and he'd tell you your fortune like Jack Webb is a drill sergeant. You knew where you stood. But after it, we all went out to the restaurant. We went to the, the club. We had fun. Guys love Dennis. I love Dennis. We had a misunderstanding. Uh, I regretted it. His son Mark and I have 
had lunch a couple of times. I eulogized Dennis at the memorial show that Rikatazu promoted for him in North Jersey. Uh, every year when it's the anniversary of Dennis's death, I write the same thing. A great man whose heart and soul was the business and was robbed of the best years of his life by a freak accident that happened in an area hospital. Uh, there'll never be another Dennis Carlosa. Jim Cornette and he, they were very much alike, very much alike. They thought the same way. They promoted the same way. Old school was more than just a term of art. It was a lifestyle. It filled the building. Dennis filled the buildings. Back then, without breaking a sweat, 1,200, 1,300, we ran in all the schools up and down the Jersey coast. And all you had to do was put it out. They knew the names. These guys were picked up by the Fed. Dennis, Bill, who the hell knew Chris Candido? Who the hell knew him? Dennis Carluzzo made sure that they did because Carluzzo cards were covered by the press. Carluzzo cards were talked about. Something was always going to happen in the Carluzzo card. You knew that. Something outrageous. You, you didn't know when it was going to happen, but you knew that it was going to happen. And he never disappointed. There'll never be another guy like him. He earned a spot in the NWA Hall of Fame. I was proud to nominate him. He went through unanimously. Uh, the two idiots I know of that still hate him, oh, I'm going to urinate on his grave. On your worst day, you couldn't have cleaned his jockstrap. There's one of them, to me, piece of garbage, evil, got his just comeuppance, lost his home. He was just rotten. You don't make comments to a son when his father just died at 48 years of age. You don't do that. You don't do that. But he did. I mean, that's the end. I'm not going to name a name. Let's just say that uh, Jaden mentioned him on the thread about questions for Fred. You're bright enough to connect the dots, DKM. I am. Let's go back to Jaden for a minute. I know we're running out of time. All I'm going to say is this. Dog, Jaden's promotion, I'll be there refereeing in mid-November. If you like what the NWA was and can be again, Pumpkin Smasher, come to Jaden's card. You won't be disappointed. Well, Fred, I have to say this has been one of the most enjoyable conversations I've had in a long time, probably because I haven't had to do much of the talking. <laughs> well, I, 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 as Lou Albano would say, I was vaccinated with a phonograph needle. I love this business. It's been part of my life since 1960. It's going to stay in my life. I don't ref as often as I used to, but I still do it. I will not do it unless I'm, I'm capable of doing it. DKM, thank you so much. You and Jay, keep up the good work. I'm proud of you. All right. Thank you. Well, of course, we'd love to have you back again because I'd like to get more into some of your opinions of the modern-day stuff. So Anytime. We'll but if you talk up. to that damn pumpkin smasher, if you talk to that bald-headed pumpkin smasher, tell him he can do this. I will let him know. I will send him a link Stay to well, this. Stay well, DKM. Uh, you too. You and, and your family, sir. Be well, Bob. Thank you. And that was Mr. Fred, the evil Mr. Fred, regaling us with some stories of how it should be and how it used to be. And this is DKM for AllianceDashWrestling.com. We'll see you guys for our next podcast.